We've been going through the book of Acts for an awesome season now that we're studying the early church. We're studying the days right after Jesus was here on this earth, right after he was crucified on the cross and rose again from the grave. We're now studying those men that he discipled. We're studying the men who were close to Christ during his lifetime ministry. And as we study these men, we see how God moved mightily through men who were human beings, who were flawed, who were used mightily by him. We're studying these guys who were so full of passion for Christ that despite trials, despite persecution, they endured and they moved forward in the call that God had placed for their life. They realized that God had made them for a specific purpose, that God had a plan for their life, that God loved them very much. And this drove them to the far corners of the world. And it was just 11 men at first who would end up turning the entire world upside down. Sometimes we think, oh, we're one person. What, what can we do in such a, a big world? But with Christ, all things are possible. If you remember, we left off with, with Paul and Silas. They were in prison last week. And they were there, and what were they doing when we, they were arrested for their faith? They were worshiping God. They were singing hymns. And then an earthquake happened, and the prison doors opened up, allowing them the freedom to escape. But instead of running away, they, they remained. And the prison guard who was about to kill himself, he took a sword to slay himself because he realized that if my prisoners escape, that's my head now on the table. And before he killed himself, Paul called out to the guard and said, Stop, do no harm to yourself. We're all here. We haven't left. Excuse me. We didn't leave. And the prison guard went to them and realized that these men who had been singing all night in joy despite their chains, these men had something that he didn't have. They knew who God was. And they had a relationship with the creator of the universe. And he said, men, what do I need to do to be saved? And they said, simply believe on Jesus Christ. You see, it's that simple. Our, our faith, our belief in Jesus Christ is what gets us saved. Now there's evidence when we truly believe in, in Christ and I, I'm not the judge to know everyone's spiritual state. I, I can't always determine whether someone is saved or not. Only God knows that. But we can see evidence of it when we see a person who has repented from sin, when we see a person who has left behind their old life and is bearing fruits of the Spirit, good works. Now, good works don't get us into heaven 
but they are evidence that someone is saved. But let's not forget the simplicity of the gospel truth that Jesus Christ, us accepting him as Lord and Savior, is what gets us into heaven. So Paul, after converting this prisoner guard, then moves on. They, they let him go. And now he continues on his journey of his second missionary trip. And there he is now in the region in Greece. We're going to embark now as he comes to the Thessalonians. So in Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 1, it says, Now when they had passed through Amphilippus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. So now Paul, in his missions work, he goes to Thessalonica, a Greek territory, and he stayed there for three weeks. He, he taught the Jews first, as was his custom. He would go first to his own brethren, the Jewish culture, the Jewish religion. You see, they knew about Jehovah God, but he needed to explain to them how Jehovah God had sent Jesus as the Messiah. So he reasoned with them using their own scriptures, the Old Testament, their law. And in verse 3, it says something interesting. He says, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. You see, that was the mission of the Savior of the world, of the Messiah, that he was supposed to suffer and rise from the dead. A lot of the Jews, they were expecting that their Messiah was going to come be a man and basically turn the world into this national nation of Judaism and he would reign righteously, that he would overthrow the Roman government which was taking them as captive. But that's not what Christ did when he came here. He didn't come to overthrow the Roman government. He came to free sinners from their sin. I'm remembering about the two men on the road to Demaeus. We, we look at Luke chapter 24. You don't need to turn there. But in Luke chapter 24, it talks about these two men who after Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, they're walking down the road to Emmaus and they're so sad because they... They know that Jesus was killed, their, their Messiah, whom they waited for so long to redeem Israel. And they don't understand that Christ had risen from the grave. They don't understand that the Christ was to suffer. And so as they're walking down this road, suddenly the risen Lord Jesus comes alongside of them. In disguise, though, their, their eyes are blinded to the fact that it's Jesus who's walking with them. And so as they're walking down, Jesus comes alongside them and says, Hey, hey, what is it that you guys are, 
are talking about that you guys are so sad. And the disciples are like, don't, don't you know? Haven't you heard what they did to our Messiah, to Jesus, that they crucified him? He was a prophet, a man of great holiness from the Lord, and they crucified him. And as Jesus is walking along with them, maybe he's got his shades on so they don't recognize it's him. And he's like, well, doesn't the Old Testament say that the Christ was supposed to be crucified, that he was supposed to suffer? And they're like, what? What do you mean? And then the Bible says that from the Old Testament, from Moses, all the way through the Old Testament prophets, Jesus began to explain to these disciples how the Christ was supposed to suffer. He starts quoting scriptures in the Psalms about how the Christ was going to be put on a cross, how he was going to cry out, Father, why have you forsaken me? And he's bringing up all these Old Testament prophecies and their eyes are opening now to the truth that, wow, our own scriptures prophesied that the Messiah was going to suffer. And so as they're walking along this road, Jesus now, he's acting like he's going to depart from them. And they say, no, you have to stay, stay the night with us. Come eat with us and, and let's talk more. We, we love this fellowship. And so Jesus walks in with them. He's like, all right, I'll, I'll stay with you guys. And he goes in with them. And then as they're breaking bread, suddenly their eyes are opened and they realize it's Jesus who's there with them. And it's at that moment that he disappears. He, he vanishes from sight. And they say, didn't it burn in our hearts when he expounded the scriptures to us? See, that's what the word of God does. It burns in our hearts when we realize who the savior of the world is, what his mission was, not only for the whole world, but for us individually. You see, Christ died for each and every single one of us. If it was just you who was going to accept him, he would have came here and died for you. You see, he was supposed to suffer. And this is what Paul was explaining to these Greeks and Jews now in Thessalonica. And as he's explaining this to them, he, he continues on in verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So meaning there is a lot of leading women and a great multitude of devout Greeks who now are experiencing revival. This is awesome. A, a great group of Gentile people are now coming to the Lord which would later affect the whole European nations in the future, where we get uh, Greek Orthodox religions and much uh, Christianity was spread through Europe because of Paul preaching now. Look at verse 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. 
But when did they when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So Jason was this man who became a disciple to Paul. And he, he was there uh, with his home, uh, inviting the disciples in. And they found out that Jason was harboring these Christians, so they went to Jason and attacked his house. A mob of them did. And they dragged him out of his very home and attacked him. Now this is what is known as persecution. When people are attacked and put through trial for their faith, Jason is experiencing this. And the charge that they lay against Jason is a charge that I hope that we get charged with. They said in verse 6, These who have turned the world upside down. How awesome would it be to hear that in our life, that the believers in our community here in Southern California, they're turning the world upside down. The Christians, they're turning the world upside down. Perhaps that's what the world is, is thinking, not realizing that it's actually the truth and the love of Christ that we're spreading. See, the world needs to be turned upside down because it needs to be turned right side up. Now this charge that's spreading the truth of love and Christ and the gospel, they didn't turn the world upside down by rallying with political rallies and conventions. No, but they turned them to, to Christ. I'll say this, being completely transparent this morning. We have uh, the right to vote here. We have the right to vote. And it's, a, it's an awesome privilege that we have. But I, I, we're not voting for our king as Christians. We're not voting for our king. What we're voting for is for someone to represent the United States of America. Not representing the Christian faith. That's not what we're voting for. So we should vote righteously. But with someone who is going to be close to those Christian values. The party. Now, Jesus is king. Jesus is my king. So I, I'm not greatly moved by who is going to be president of the United States because I remember that Jesus is king and he appoints who the rulers are of this world. Now that's, that doesn't take away from our responsibility. But what's interesting about this passage is that they were laying a claim against Jason 
that he was going against the Greek law, against Caesar, and saying that there is another king named Jesus. Which is a half-truth. You see, he wasn't going against Caesar, Jason. But there is another king, Jesus. Maybe you guys have heard of a, a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John the Beloved, John the Gospel writer. Polycarp, being discipled by John, had such a love for Christ. This is, again, the early church, close to the, uh, the first century. And Polycarp was persecuted for his faith. He was also became a martyr. You see, around this time, Polycarp was in old age now, a leader of the church. The government came against him. They imprisoned him for his faith, for his preaching of the word. And then they threatened to execute him. And this is back when they had the Roman Colosseum and they would bring Christians out to the middle of the Colosseum and have lions tear them apart. Caesar Nero would put poles along the Roman cathedrals and have Christians hanging on these poles as they were set aflame. This is that era. So a great time to be afraid as a Christian or reason to be afraid. But Polycarp, knowing his God, he refused to say hail Caesar to the Roman government. And they told him, if you simply denounce Christ and just say, Hail Caesar, we'll spare your life. But he wouldn't do that. He said, 86 years I've served Christ and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So on a stake they set him on fire. But Polycarp, as he's there on the stake, the fire would not consume him. And they were waiting and waiting, and the fire wasn't consuming him. So eventually they, they took their spears, and they stabbed him as he was there on the stake. And tradition tells us that the blood that came out of Polycarp ended up distinguishing the flames that were going to consume him. And Polycarp died for his faith. Now, I, I believe that God gives these martyrs that, that strength, that power that they need in the moment to be able to endure such tortures, such extreme persecution. But what we see is that in our nation today, here in Southern California, things can turn bad, that we can be persecuted. In a light way, we don't experience persecution by any means at the level that others do across the world. But there's going to be people in our life who will call us racist, sexist, homophobic, Islamophobic because we teach the Bible, because we read the Bible. You see, we, we do love 
everyone as Christians. And we, we share truth in love. We share that there is sin that needs to be repented of. And this is why we are persecuted. Because we try to turn the world upside down. In verse 8, as we continue. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So now these rulers there in Thessalonica, they realize that the charge that these Jewish men were bringing against Jason really didn't have much warrant. So they just basically let Jason go. That was God's mercy. In verse 10, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So Paul and Silas, they leave Thessalonica after the Thessalonians rejected much of their gospel. And they went to Berea. And what I love about the Bereans, we recognize that once they heard the word, they received it. And they were ready to receive the word of God. They had their hearts prepared of, okay, I'm going to take in the truth. But what uh, is even more expedient about the Bereans is once they heard the truth, they didn't just take it at face value. They took those words and then went and researched it themselves. See, they didn't want fake news coming into their minds. They heard Paul's preaching and then they went to their own scriptures and saw if what Paul was saying was true. I love telling people, this is what my pastors have taught me, and this is what I'll teach you guys. Don't take my word for it. Don't believe me. Go and research yourself. And if you ever see, like, oh, he was wrong about that, come and tell me, and I'll show you how you were wrong. <laughs> so we need to be like the Bereans, though. We need to go out there and find out the truth for ourselves. In verse 12, therefore many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. Notice how it continually mentions the prominent women, and there was many women. Because what I see is that at this time, God was opening the hearts up to these women there in Greece. And then in verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea. They came there and also stirred up the crowds. So th after being rejected in, in Thessalonica, the Thessalonians hear, oh, that guy, he's preaching his gospel over there in Berea. Let's go stop him. Whenever we see a, a work of God, a move of the Spirit, you should expect a work of the enemy trying to come against it. We see it constantly happen throughout Scripture. We see it happen in our lives. And if you expect to be surprised, you won't be so moved and so worried when that surprise comes. You're like, well, we knew it was coming. 
And you keep fighting forward. In verse 14, Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. Now remember, Silas and Timothy are Paul's disciples. Something I love about this is after Paul had been allowing them to tag along this mission work, he is now saying and allowing for Silas and Timothy to remain there in Berea. Meaning that they were trained and they're now ready to teach on their own. We see progress in these disciples. In verse 15, So those who conducted Paul and brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So, now Paul goes to the heart of Greece, to Athens. Athens is a a town to this day filled with Greek gods, Greek statues, very beautiful rock city, the, the temples and all the, the monuments that are there uh, make you feel like you're back in the days of gladiator. And as Paul is now journeying through Athens, he continues to do what he always does and preach the gospel. But something that burdens Paul's heart is he sees all the idolatry, all the gods that they worshipped. So as he's going now to the marketplace, spreading the gospel, I love how at the end of verse 17 it says that he was there daily with those who happened to be there. You see, uh, I like how Paul sometimes didn't have to try to open a door for evangelism. He simply was an evangelist wherever he went. He didn't try to force someone to, to meet him. But if somebody happened to be there at the marketplace when he was buying his, his groceries, he would just start a conversation and one way or another would end up sharing. He would see that open door. He would share the gospel. Recently, we uh, did an interview with one of my friends. His name was Freddie Flores and he, he grew up in El Monte, had a came out of the neighborhood, so to speak. And God radically changed his life from being surrounded by by gangs and by death. And God got a hold of this man's life. And gave him such a heart for evangelism. And especially the youth. And it's quite interesting because after the the interview, after he explained how, I asked him, how can we reach the youth? And he was saying that to love them, to get on their level, 
that we need to be able to just come alongside them, just ask them how they're doing, be very simple, very honest with them, being very uh, transparent, not fake. And what I love about right after that interview is we went to go get some tacos down the street at the taco truck. That's not the end of the story. There's more than just the taco truck. So then we're there, and this skater kid comes by. And as soon as I saw the skater kid, I was like, hmm. Like, I just felt like, I wonder if Freddie's going to talk to this kid. And I saw him from far away, come skating by, came right behind us in line, went to order some tacos. And sure enough, right after we finished our order, right after he finished his order, Freddie walked right up to the guy and so boldly was like, hey, do you believe in God? And the skater kid was like, I believe in Satan. (laughs) I think trying to be abrasive and trying to like, you know, offend a little bit. And then we kind of just stood back and then prayed and watched Freddie, you know, just talk to the guy, love on the guy. And this kid went from being like, kind of like, out there and bold to suddenly like the masks began to come off of this kid and he just was open up now to hear what Freddie had to say and to be real to be soberly minded for a moment and just hear Freddie out and said at the end of this conversation said you know um, I'm not going to just accept God because you're here like I'm going to be real with you but I'm going to think about it And you could see how that the Holy Spirit just went, broke through this kid's heart and mind to see him, the truth, the reality of the moment. Kind of took away his pride for a moment and just let him be real with Freddie. But Freddie wasn't planning on running into this kid. He just happened to be there. And I think so many times in our life we have divine appointments where somebody just happens to be there. And we, we get scared. I get scared sometimes. But that's when we could pray and just say, all right, God, just give me the words. Like, hey, how's it going? Cool, you know? Yeah, Jesus has been good to me this week. Like, Jesus. That's simple. So Paul here, he's continuing his evangelism. In verse 18, Then the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So we have now these two groups of philosophers. You see, one thing that the Greeks love to do is to be very academic, to be very smart. And a lot of our philosophy that's taught in schools stems from there in Greece today. Even our our judicial system with trial by jury, that comes from Greece. But these Epicurean and Stoics, the Epicureans, they claimed that we should seek to maximize our own pleasure mainly by removing pain from our lives. They believe that to avoid pain in life, we need to just be very simple and have strong friendships, and that we could be happy like the gods if we leave free from anxiety. So they were much 
into pleasure. And they felt that pleasure, what we did with our bodies, was separate from our spirit, which that's not true. On the other hand, the Stoics, they claimed that living justly and virtuously is the highest good that one can experience, and that pleasure and pain are to be treated indifferently. They don't really matter. But that we were to accept the course of nature of this world, that we're just basically atoms, that once we die, we disappear. So we have these two Greek schools of philosophy that now Paul comes across and they begin to hear about this Jesus and the resurrection and they want to know more about Paul's preaching. So at verse 19 it says, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange thing to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time and nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. So I'm imagining all these Greek philosophers like, hmm, yes, give me this uh, new doctrine. They're a very high-class society wanting to know about what is maybe this new idea that they can add to their academia. See, philosophy, the definition of philosophy, it's the rational investigation of the truths and the principles of being, of knowledge, or conduct. See, it's the investigation of what is truth. But now we have to deal with what is gospel truth. What is the reality? We can't just rely on just thinking about it and being open to every road that comes our way, but we need to seek what is the reality of the situation. What is the reality of our spiritual state? What happens after we die? So Paul now is going to explain this to them. It says in verse 22, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. See, the Greeks, they had many gods. In fact, they had 400, over 400 minor gods, and they had these 12 Olympian gods. Perhaps you've heard of Zeus and Poseidon and Hades, Athena, Apollo. We learn about them in high school, Greek mythology. And as Paul is there, he's perceiving, look, I, I see you guys have your, your religions. You're very religious, very devoted. But I know that one thing that Paul, that burdened him, was he re was remembering how Isaiah wrote about the man who goes out and chops down a tree. And he takes the wood from that tree and he chops some of it up and makes a fire. And with that fire, he makes some food for himself. And with that fire, he warms himself. 
And with the rest of that wood that he gets, he, he brings it and then he carves an idol out of it. And then he begins to worship that idol. And Paul saw that, that this was foolishness. That the very wood that you use to burn to keep yourself warm, you now lay before it and say, you are my God. You see, when we have idols in our life, when we worship something, we actually make ourselves less than that idol because we are saying, you are God. I worship you. I serve you. Now, maybe we don't have a little wooden monkey in the closet that we are worshiping from day to day, but maybe we have pursuits in our life that we worship. Maybe we have a person. Maybe there's idolatry for our job, for a relationship, for pride, ourselves maybe, where we put whatever that thing is above ourselves and make ourselves less than that thing that we are worshiping. So we lower ourselves sometimes to things that are not eternal, to things that will fade away and that can't save us, things that can't bring us peace or hope or joy. This is what happens when we allow idolatry in our life, as we submit ourselves to things that are not the creator of the universe. We submit ourselves to things that are not the God who loves us. And this is what burdened Paul in his heart. So he says in verse 23, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him I proclaim to you. Now look how Paul is discerning how he uses the Greeks' environment, the, something that they are relative to, as an open door. He saw, as he was going through their idolatrous markets, he saw this one temple, it said, to the unknown God. You see, because the Greeks were fearful because they believed in all these different gods, that they might have forgotten about one. And because they might have forgotten about one, they said, well, let's make a little shrine for any gods that we forgot about and just put to the unknown God, to whom it may concern. And Paul used that, that plaque as a door. He said, all right, I, I notice you guys have to the unknown God. Well, that's the God I want to tell you about, he says. And he begins now to preach on the one true God. In verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Here's something beautiful. See, God is spirit. God is, when you study his attributes, the all-powerful, the uncaused causer, meaning he, he has no creation. He was always existent. 
He's not moved. God does not change. God is spirit. He doesn't dwell in a building. He doesn't dwell in the building church. But here's the awesome thing about our God, about the Christian religion. See, we are the only religion where the God of this religion comes and lives inside of the worshiper. See, the Holy Spirit lives inside of our bodies and moves through us powerfully when we are open to him. Something I I love is that the same Holy Spirit that is working through me right now is working in your hearts. He connects us all. It's something that can't be recorded on a camera. Something that we don't see is those thoughts and ideas that are changing in the hearts and minds of people in a church. It can't be contained on this camera. But the Holy Spirit is working in all of us, connecting us. He can't be put into a box. In verse 25, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things. See, God is perfect, and he's also simple in his perfection. He has no need for anything. He didn't need us in his trinity. God is the Father, the head. And with that is his son, Jesus, who is also God. And you have the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, but one God, one being. Now, this is kind of the the hard question for the Bible scholar as well as the young child. Well, how can Jesus and God be the same person? I don't fully understand it. I know the Bible teaches us this. And then I could say, well, it's like, it's like water, you know. Water has three forms. It's ice, it's vapor, and it's also liquid. But then again, I'm comparing God to a finite object. Then I'm like, I, I don't think it's that simple. See, our finite minds will try to understand it. But I think God calls us just to know it, just to trust him. That he is three distinct persons in one being, the Trinity, God. That he gives to all life, it said again in verse 25, he gives to all life, breath, and all things. This comforts me. You see, our greatest physical need is survival. And God gives life. A breath. When we sleep, do we think about breathing? Hopefully not. God gives us breath. And all things. In Daniel chapter 5, verse 23, there's a verse in the Bible that says, You have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, 
which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hands and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Daniel 5.23 See, God holds our breath in his hand, which keeps us alive. So why do we trust him with those vital things in life, the things that keep us alive, but we don't trust him with the more simple things in life? You see, God is our creator. He gives us life. So if he is our creator, we have to ask, what are we then created for? What is our purpose here on this earth? Well, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, the Bible says that thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. See, God has made all things for his pleasure, meaning that we are created for the pleasure of God, not for ourselves, for God's good will to be done. So if this is what our purpose is, to be God's pleasure, to fulfill his will, then everything that we do apart from God, we're not living that purpose-filled life in doing so. In our life, we desire purpose. We desire something to have meaning of our being, of who we are. And if we try to fit ourselves into a mold that we were not created for, we'll be frustrated and anxious and alone. But when we submit ourselves to the will of God, then we're living our purpose-filled life. In verse 26, and he made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. See, He's explaining that starting from Adam, we spread all over the world. And God, he appoints our times because he's sovereign, our dwellings. That gives me hope that God knows where I'm to dwell in the future. And that we should seek him. And that it's put in our hearts, in our minds, to reach out for a God. That it says that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. See, we're naturally inclined to search for our God. The sad thing is many people end up putting idolatry in the God's place. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. So we are made in the image of God. In him we live, we move, we have our being. God lives in us. 
our life is hidden with Christ. You want to know the answer to the problem that you're having this morning? The answer is Christ. It's Jesus. The trial, the struggle, the breakthrough, it's all hidden within Christ. In him we live, we move, we have our being. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul again writes, he says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So when we find ourselves hating our life, simply ask Jesus that we might live his life. That we might find ourselves in him, through him. So how do we do that? How do we find our life hidden in Christ? To make it more applicable, we do that by having a relationship with him. By spending time reading our Bibles so we can know more about Jesus, know more about God. We do that by praying. This is communication now with God by fellowship with believers to help us to to remain strong in the Lord. People who will keep us accountable, encourage us towards Christ. These are building and growing as a mature Christian believer. And in this, we will find our life in Christ. In verse 29, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by the art and man's devising. So Paul here is rebuking their idolatry, saying God is not something that you can carve into stone. In verse 30, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. See, God is gracious. He's slow in his judgment. He's long-suffering with us who are sinners, desires that we would get saved. And his desire is that we would repent. You see, repentance is simply... You're walking one way against the Lord. And you're on this path. Repentance is simply turning away from that, turning back to the Lord and walking the other way. That's all repentance is. And as a believer, you'll find yourself, because sometimes we don't like the idea of repentance, as we grow in the Lord, we end up repenting more and more We do it more so as we grow as a believer. And we don't become sinless, but we do sin less. And it's a progress. Verse 31, Because he was appointed 
He has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. He's now explaining how Jesus, the Messiah, will return as king. You want to know why people don't believe that Jesus is going to be coming back from the clouds? It's because they haven't seen it. The same reason why the people in Noah's time, they didn't believe that a flood was going to encapsulate the whole world. It's because they never saw rain in their life. But then God brought the rains. The same reason why the Israelites didn't believe they would be able to enter into the promised land is because they had never seen God overthrow an entire nation and bring them into the promised land. And once they saw it, once they realized the truth of how awesome and powerful our God is, then they believed. And in this day and age, people will see again that Jesus is going to return. In verse 32, And when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some of Men joined him and believed among them Dionysius, the Aeropagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So some believed, but most of them said, all right, come back. We're going to hear you again on this matter. And so I I think the message to us in this is you guys uh, come back and hear us again on this matter. (laughs) We need to learn more uh, uh, about Christ, more about the God who lives inside us. The God who has called us. See, we have a a choice to make in our our hearts, in our minds, in our life. Of who is king in our life. Is Caesar king? Our government Are we king? See, there's a throne on the heart of every man, every woman. And that throne is filled with either a person, a thing, or the one true living God. May it be Jesus. May it be Jesus who's on the throne when we face the trials that come our way this week when we have to make those what seem to be small decisions in life. May you be like Paul who goes out and is simply used and whoever happens to be there, would we share that love, that truth, the gospel truth, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he rose again from the grave, that he loves you very much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, your grace, for your mercy. I ask, Father, that this morning you would remove anxiety, remove 
fear from our hearts, our minds. Lord, if we need to submit to you this morning, may your Holy Spirit penetrate our hearts. If this morning during the study there is something that greatly that you desired, that you do not have, if there is a trial in your life and you know that God needs to answer this this trial, that you need his Holy Spirit to move powerfully so that you can overcome. If that's you this morning, just raise your hand and I'm just going to ask that the Holy Spirit would impact. Okay, you guys can put your hands down. Heavenly Father, for those who rose their hands this morning, I ask that your Holy Spirit would break through in that situation. That your Holy Spirit would humble us, would move in our hearts and our minds. May you be Lord and Savior over us. May it not be just words, but may we, Father, seek after you fully and completely. May we make decisions, Lord God, based on you being king and not ourselves. And I pray and I ask, Lord, that you would bring freedom, that you would bring salvation, and Lord God, just save us from and save us through the trials at hand. We love you, Father. We praise you, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Well, a blessing to teach that chapter this morning. We It's one of my favorite chapters in the book of Acts because I'm reminded that God's in control of the situation the trials that we go through that he loves us and he wants to move in our lives so if it's God who has allowed us to be here this morning who has allowed us to have our breath in our lungs we could rely that he has a plan for our life. He wants to use us. He loves us so much that he has not forgotten about those things that we've been praying about. He has not forgotten about those needs in our life, in our mind. So we can leave this morning trusting him and surrendering to him. So let's end with this song. Great are you, Lord. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. Great are 
Cause it's your breath in our lungs So we pour out our praise to you only your praise our hearts will cry these bones will sing great are you Lord all the earth will shout your praise our hearts will cry these bones will sing great So we pour out our praise to you only. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. quick announcement uh, starting next week we will be meeting here but at 11:30 a.m. it's a little cooler now so you guys can get that extra hour of sleep if you need it <laughs> but we will be here in our backyard at 11:30 a.m. starting next week all right we love you guys we'll see you all right <laughs>